1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin, and today we have a really special guest. We have Mark Redfield, who is a professor of comparative literature, English and German studies at Brown University. He has a really wide range of interests from the Bildungsroman, the intersections of nationalism, media and technics, Terrorism and War, and the History and Practice of Literary Theory, which all show up in the many different works he's written. Um, some of those include Phantom Formations, Aesthetic Ideology, and the Buildings Roman*. The Politics of Aesthetics, Nationalism, Gender, and Romanticism, and the Rhetoric of Terror, Reflections on 9-11, and the War on Terror. But today we're going to be talking about a different book, one that was just published in 2020 by the Fordham University Press, um, which is titled Shibboleth, Judges, Derrida,
0: and Ceylon. Hello, Mark. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you, Britt. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, so before we begin, I just want to ask you about your background, um, both as if you want to talk a little bit more about your how you came to literature and your interests and how they intersect with each other, as well as um, the background of the book, how it came into being, what inspired you to write it, as well as what you looked at in gathering um, resources and during the research stage of writing.
0: Hmm. Okay, thanks. Uh, that's that's That would be a lot to talk about, but I'll try to be concise. Uh, well, I've loved uh, literature since I was a child i was you know one of those bookish kids um and i think that one thing that feeds into the well into everything i do but particularly maybe into this book is the fact that i grew up overseas uh, a lot i grew up in a couple of different places uh the us but also switzerland and um and brazil and um one of my formative memories is of being a little child in kindergarten desperately wanting to be able to talk like the other kids. This was in Zurich. And so I've always grown up with a sense that there were other languages out there. And I had a, as it were, sort of libidinal investment in, you know, in, in, particularly in a couple of languages, particularly German uh, and then later French in my, in my life. Um, so uh, that led me into comparative literature. Um, and, This particular project, maybe I'll just sort of jump to that. And if you want, you know, we could talk more about my background. But uh, this particular project uh, kind of came out of us through a circuitous route uh, because I'm interested in language and in borders and in uh, the question of passing borders and passing or failing to pass in all sorts of ways. But in this case, linguistic texts. Tests, tests, as well as texts. I was interested in the biblical story of the Shibboleth test, which we'll get to in a second. Um, But the reason why I started writing about it was because I was asked to give a paper for a conference for the great literary critic and media critic Sam Weber. And I um, was interested in... uh, Jonathan Littell's novel, The Kindly Ones, Les Bienveillants, and Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, the film of, uh, what was it, 2008 or something. And um, these are very, very different texts of topics. I was kind of interested in the way in which the cultured Nazi in these films, the perpetrator, is granted linguistic power. And um, all the, the, both of these texts involve scenes of passing or failing to pass linguistic tests. And so I included in the little paper I wrote for that, or it ended up being an essay, a brief reading of the story in Judges. Uh, And the core of that story, um, which you may want to come back to, is that the word shibboleth is used as a pronunciation test by the Gileadites who have defeated the Ephraimites. The Ephraimites are seeking to flee back over the Jordan River, but the Gileadites hold the ford. And um, maybe, Brit, it would be useful if I just read the line.
1: Uh, yeah, that's totally fine. In
0: which are the, the two verses in which, in which the core issue is raised. Um, and the Gileadites took the passage of Jordan before the Ephraimites. And it was so that when those Ephraimites, which were escaped, said, let me go over, that the men of Gilead said unto him, art thou an Ephraimite? if he said nay, then said they unto him, say now Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. And there fell at that time of the Ephraimites, 40 and 2000. That's the King James translation. So we'll get back to that story. But in doing a sort of quick reading of it for this project, I realized the story touched on large issues. Uh, I was also using a password management system called Shibboleth, which uh, everybody at Brown uses and, and, and elsewhere. So uh, that made me think that, you know, this, this word uh, actually might also be able to grant us access in ways of thinking about the testing and filtering of populations at our present in our present time in an area of era of um, sort of massive technical um, power and um, so add to that a long standing love of Ceylon's poetry and admiration for the work of Jacques Derrida i reread derrida's wonderful short book called shibboleth for paul Ma- paul Ceylon, um, from 1986 um, in that book, Derrida says many brilliant things about Shibboleth and about Ceylon, but he doesn't really read the biblical story closely or any one poem by Ceylon closely, uh, certainly not the two poems that in which Ceylon uses the word Shibboleth, which again, we'll probably get to in a moment. And I thought, well, I can do that. I'm a literary critic. So I started working on this and it gradually grew into the relatively short quite short book um but still a kind of a book-sized project that um you know that it is now
1: yeah it is a relatively short project it's um when i first got it i saw it was only 108 pages or 106 and i was i thought oh this will be a very very quick read um but it's so dense um you cover biblical history as well as um be obviously incredibly dense. Derrida, but also Ceylon, who is such a, a writer whose, whose work is so intricate and is multifaceted and al- is always referencing something. And people in Ceylon scholarship obviously know this, but it's there's it's almost impossible, I'm sure it is impossible, to completely exhaust the references of any Ceylon poem. Um, and you, you mentioned that in the text as well. So I want to start... I guess with the biblical story. Um, so your first chapter, as well as a later one, talk about Shibboleth as part of this biblical story and how it becomes part of our linguistic and cultural um, canon. And that, and while that happened, it, the term Shibboleth has taken over some changes over time. Um, can you talk about the what you track inside of this history and how we understand shibboleth versus how it originally was?
0: Yes. Um, Let me sort of go at that backwards by quickly uh, noting that in English, uh, the dominant meaning of the word shibboleth now uh, is of a worn-out cliché. So we talk about the shibboleths of yesteryear or something of this sort, a worn-out shibboleth. Uh, we say, and the word shibboleth itself suggests that now only the English language really has that meaning, although the German language also allows the word shibboleth to mean kind of a slogan, uh, a, war, so, so a potentially worn out uh, uh, bit of language. Uh, but uh, really, in other languages, uh, uh, the word has stayed closer to its it's the meaning that comes out of the biblical story, which is that of test word. But in biblical Hebrew, the word has two meanings. Uh, One is of a stream, a flowing stream, and the other is of an ear of grain. Um, So um, the interesting thing about the story uh, in Judges that we just read the kernel of is that it doesn't matter what it means. It's being used uh, simply as a pronunciation test to weed out uh, a foreigner, someone who is ambivalently foreign. A supplemental test is needed, right, to catch the foreigner um, or or the other, let us say. Uh, So the other is dangerously proximate to the self. This is, I'm already getting into, you know, the interesting things about the story. Uh, But um, uh, let's see. Yes. So um, if we go back to the book of Judges, uh, which is one of the bloodiest books in the Bible, uh, the uh, fuller story of the, of, uh, uh, or the story in which the Shibboleth test emerges is the story of the judge uh, Jephthah, uh, who is a quasi illegitimate figure insofar as on his mother's side, uh, he's, he's the child of a, of a non-legal spouse. Uh, so he's a liminal figure. He's expelled from the community uh, by the by the true sons, um, but then presumably because he's a great military commander, he's asked to lead the um, to to lead the Gileadites uh, when they're in danger, and he agrees to do so if they will name him shofat or judge. So they do, and Jephthah in his turn. Uh, swears an oath that he will if he's allowed by God, he swears the oath to God. he said uh, if he's allowed to win, he will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of the door of his house. And you can see where that goes if right if you mythic logic demands that his only child, a daughter, is be the first uh, creature to emerge from his from his house. And so this is also, The story of the only foregrounded, um, although it's discreet, but foregrounded child sacrifice in the Bible. Um, So Jephthah is the anti-Abraham in that sense, because um, the daughter is presumably sacrificed, because he does with her as he had vowed to do. So right after that, you get the story of the Shibboleth test. So one interpretive challenge is to think about ways in which these, these violent stories might connect. And um, um, you know it's a bit speculative, but I think they connect insofar as the shibboleth test, if you look at it carefully, turns out to involve a both a, a drama of murderously effective sovereign power and a threat that that sovereign power uh, lose its grip on the world because that's what language does. And linguistic tests are always permeable because a linguistic sign is always uh, repeatable. Iterable was the word that Jacques Derrida preferred in his great analyses of how, uh, of how this works. So um, I think it's a very rich story. And I'll mention just one other oddity um, it, uh, that I found, I, to my delighted amazement, as I carefully read read the uh, read the text. Um, the word shibboleth um, uh, has has as its initial letter the shin phoneme, um, which in unpointed Hebrew script is exactly the same as the sin phoneme, which is the S sound, sibileth, as opposed to shibboleth. So in order for the story to be written down, as one biblical scholar notes, uh, the word had to be misspelled with a different Hebrew character, the samech, as though the text itself were registering a kind of repetition of, the, of a failure of uh, of a shibboleth test, even as it tells the story. It's an intriguing little detail. You know, you can't put too much weight on it, but it's an interesting uh, contingency that points us toward the deep instabilities at work in the, in the notion of a shibboleth test.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a deep, Ambiguity within the concept of the shibboleth in that it points, as you mentioned, both to sovereign power and the possibility of the failure of that power. Um, and I think you also draw out a lot of connections to the shibboleth as a concept um, after it becomes a, a non-word or an unword, if it can ever be a word to the idea of language. And I want to bring that to a chapter that is more towards the end of the book on the story of Babel, Um, staying with this kind biblical context. um, Can you kind of elaborate on how the story of Babel and um, Pentecostal speech as well feeds into or relates to the question of the shibboleth? Because I think what you're drawing out is the idea that, there is always something unstable about language. The shibboleth only can work because of the possibility of misspeaking or of mishearing. Um, Whereas in the story of Babel, you point out that the language was always already needing to be translated or the possibility of translation was already inside of language even before it was scattered. Um, So if you could just draw out those connections you make.
0: Sure, I'll try. The uh, the story of of Babel in, in Genesis, the way it's told already contains, as is typical in 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 um, ancient Hebrew writing, um, uh, many puns, um, uh, plays of the signifier, and the verb that is used um, to uh, to describe what the Lord Yahweh does uh, as he descends. To confuse the language of of the people who are building the Tower of Babel, right? Uh, the word "balal" um, means uh, to mix, um, and according to the authorities I've consulted, it's a rare verb in the Bible that's mainly used for the mixing of fine flour and oil to make um, cakes or bread. So it's a so there would be other verbs that would have been possible but instead we have this verb to mix which suggests that the ingredients are already there and that in a way babel is already in language even in pre-tower of babel language um, so it's just a hint but that hint is conf- is reiterated as it were in the great restitutive story that you get in acts in the new testament on the story of Pentecost, uh, which I found very interesting and spend a few pages uh, writing about in this, in this, as you say, um, dense book. Um, <laughs> um, if you uh, I'll very briefly summarize the, the story, right? The Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles, um, and when they speak, um, uh, everyone in the multitude around them, uh, and there's a great emphasis on how enorm- how worldwide the multitude is, as it were. Uh, everyone hears the apostles speak in their own language, and yet they also know that the apostles are speaking in the language of the other who is next to them as well. Um, I don't know that we want to actually read from that. Uh, we, you know, we have other texts to talk about. But um, if you go look at that at that passage. You'll see that it's, it's quite fascinating in this way. And what that means is that as the apostles speak with the divine inspiration that is now theirs, um, they're simultaneously passing and failing the shibboleth test, passing it perfectly, because if you give the miracle its full power, everyone is hearing the apostles speak not just in their own language, but in their own dialect, in their own idiom, right, in the way they speak in their village. And yet at the same time, they know that it's not the case. It's a simulacrum because the other is also hearing something else. So the apostles are both, <laughs> they are both uh, passing and failing the Shibboleth test uh, at the same time through the, in and through this miracle. And the result is that the, that the uh, community, that the world the uh, multitude here is confused. Um, and the Greek word that's used for their confusion is precisely the word that is used to translate uh, confusion in the Septuagint, uh, that is the Greek uh, old translation of the Old Testament to describe Babel. So it's a very, very interesting set of textual conjunctions there. And maybe I'll add one more thing, which is that um, if we say something like there is Babel in Shibboleth, uh, or the the word shibboleth conjures up these stories, that's partly because we can say that it's not a word that belongs to any language. Of course, it's an ancient Hebrew word that has the two meanings, right, of stream and grain. But its dominant meaning of, uh, or its contemporary meaning of test word, right, to mean the test that it originally performed in happens outside the borders of the Bible. So the word shibboleth in that sense is no longer a word that belongs to any language. It's an inheritance that floats through languages. And there's um, um, maybe one other, well, there's so many other things to say about the shibboleth test. Um, But while we're talking about the word itself, uh, one Another thing that I draw attention to, this is leaping back to, I guess, my third or fourth chapter. These are all very, very short chapters, as you know. Uh, uh, the test, the shibboleth test, falls on the very first sound, the phoneme, not even on the full word, right? As soon as you've started to say sh or s, you've either passed or failed. And you might, in fact, be in some ambiguous place where you know, the putatively native speaker who has the power to judge you will simply have to judge. Um, but this also means that the test fragments the word shibboleth itself. It's no longer, the test itself no longer bears on a word, but on a phoneme that might go somewhere else uh, towards some other language. It might in fact not even be language. And uh, somewhat ironically, I, I say, you know, it could be a sound, it could be flatulence, it could be some accident that produces that, that S sound. Uh, this is a pun that James Joyce uses in Ulysses. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, um, um, uh, shit burlith, um, is, is, is the pun in, in, in Ulysses. Uh, so this moment, uh, of the shibboleth test also renders language, uncertainly. language. It opens language to the possibility of being noise of being non-meaningful in an even more unradical way than simply the formality of a word from which we've excised the semantic meaning. So it's a tremendously, uh, generative and rich, uh, uh, textual moment. And as a result, ironically, all sorts of meaning collects around this meaninglessness. And we end up with a word that means the test that it was used to set, which means in turn that the word shibboleth can then mean any nuance of significant difference that allows for the exclusion of an outsider, the targeting. And the exclusion of an outsider, so it becomes an enormously rich word that can do all the things that it, you know, that it does um, later.
1: Thank you for that wonderful explanation of that biblical context. Um, as you said, we have um, some other texts that we can go through, and I would like to to go to the Ceylon poems themselves and then we can discuss the Derrida and your readings of Ceylon. Um, but I think we'll start with the poems, um, and we'll read them out loud, um, both in English and in German. Um, you'll read the German and I'll read the English. So if you would like to start with, um, and then we can read Shibboleth.
0: Sure. And maybe just as we start, um, I'm just finding my place here. Um, uh, let's note that In Eins is the later poem. So there's a way in which a reading, it's a reading of shibboleth. So we're going backwards. Uh, in Eins dates from a 1963 collection and uh, shibboleth uh, dates from a 1955 collection. So we'll, I mean, we'll maybe have occasion to say more about that. So I'll read the, uh, the German poem In Eins, uh, the later poem. In 1, 13. Feber, im Herzmond, erwachtes es Chibolette. Mit dir, peuple de Paris, no pasaran. Schäfchen zur Linken, er, Abadias, der Greis aus Huesca, kam mit dem Hunden über das Feld im Exil, stand weiß eine Wolke menschlichen Adels. Er sprach uns das Wort in die Hand, das wir brauchten, es war, Hirtenspanisch, darin im Eislicht des Kreuzers Aurora die Bruderhand winkend mit der von der wortgroßen Augen genommene Binde Petropolis der unvergessenen Wanderstadt lag auch dir toskanisch zu Herzen. Friede den Hüten.
1: And I'll read the English. In 1, 13th of February, in heart's mouth, awakened Shibboleth. With you, peuple de Paris, no pasaran. Little sheep to the left, he, Abadias, the old man from Huesca, came with his dogs over the field. In exile stood a white cloud of human nobility. He spoke us the word that we needed into the hand. It was shepherd Spanish in it, in the ice light of the cruiser Aurora, the brotherly hand waving with the band taken from the world large, word large eyes. Petropolis, the wandering city of the unforgotten, lay also for you tuscanly on your heart. Peace to the cottages. And then we can move on to the next poem, the earlier poem.
0: Schibole. mit Mitsamt meinen Steinen, den Großgeweinten, hinter den Ginteren, Schleiften sie mich in die Mitte des Marktes, Dorthin, wo die Fahne sich auch der ich keinerlei eid schwor Flöte, Doppelflöte der Nacht, denke der dunklen Zwillingsröte in Wien, in Madrid. Setz deine Fahne auf Halbmast, Erinnerung. Auf Halbmast für heute und immer. Herz, gib dich auch hier zu erkennen. Hier in der Mitte des Marktes. Rufs, das schipolet Hinaus in die Fremde der Heimat. Februar, no pasaran. Einhorn. Du weißt um die Steine. Du weist um die Wasser. Komm, ich führe dich hinweg zu den Stimmen von Estre Madura. Shibboleth.
1: Together with my stones, the ones grown large with weeping behind the bars, they dragged me into the middle of the market, over there where the flag unfurls to which I swore no oath whatsoever. Flute double flute of night. Think the dark twin redness in Vienna and Madrid. Set your flag at half mast memory, at half mast for today and forever. Heart, make yourself known here too, here in the middle of the market. Call it the shibboleth out into the foreignness of the homeland. February, no pasaran. Unicorn, you know of the stones, you know of the waters, come, I shall lead you away to the voices of Estremadura. So those are two poems by the Romanian-Jewish-German-language poet, Paul Ceylon. Um, he's one of my favorite poets, and I would feel maybe one of yours too.
0: Yes, oh yes, he's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm captured by Ceylon, I'm continuing to try to write about him actually. Yeah.
1: So I think we'll start with um what Derrida talks about um with Ceylon in reference to the Shibboleth and you mentioned he has a short book on Poselan called Shibboleth. Um Shibboleth poor Poselan. Um, it's I think I believe part of the collection Sovereignty in Question um which is a collection of, I think, five texts, all devoted to the work of Paul Ceylon. And you note in your book that it's interesting that Derrida chose to call this shibboleth, though he's not reading um, really particularly these two poems. He's reading a lot of Ceylon's poems. Um, and as you also note, that shibboleth is not a word seen much in Paul in Ceylon's poetry, just these two times. Um, Can you kind of explain the relationship between Shibboleth and Ceylon as Derrida sees it Um, and maybe how he's connecting it to his other readings of Ceylon?
0: Yes. Um, And maybe just, I I perhaps should have said earlier, um, Shibboleth is a rare word in the archive generally. Uh, The opening pages of my book briefly go over that. Uh, Of course it shows up because it's part of the bible but even though it in english for instance it rhymes with death you would think that it might have shown up in more frequently in poetry but it's 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 pretty rare so um, um, there's a very interesting use in faulkner that i talk about in the book but otherwise um, you know it's uh it's it's a word that Ceylon um grants a certain intensity to uh, and that kind of it's kind of a salient; it stands out in the sort of long record of uh, of, of the literary tradition, let's say. Um, and Derrida, whose ear was extraordinarily attuned, I think, to scatterings of density in, in texts, you know, where to go to to see where something interesting is happening. Derrida isolated that word um, in Ceylon and in his first published work on Ceylon, the 1986 book, which is now, as you say, in English, part of the, the collected uh, collection Sovereignties in Question, that's the best way. The, that's the book to buy if you want to you know, get lots of these texts in English. Um, he doesn't uh, talk much about either of the two poems that we just read aloud. Um, he talks, he discusses many texts by Salon, um, but he allows the notion of Shibboleth to, um, to serve him as a kind of lever to, as a way in as a Shibboleth, let's say to pass the border uh, into uh, Salon's work. Um, and he links the notion of shibboleth to two things. And as usual with Derrida, or, well, maybe not always, but it's, it, these, it's a kind of unexpected twist. He links shibboleth to the date and to circumcision. Those are the two main sort of topics or tropes or topoi that he focuses on in, in that book. Uh, the word circumcision, literally in its German form, bischneiden, uh, bischneidung, uh, in the, as, the, as the noun, appears only once in Salon, or at least in a major poem. Um, so the question is not, you know, looking for frequency of use. Uh, it's rather uh, uh, the way in which a word can uh, signify beyond its literal appearance. Um, now, in thinking about the importance of the date and dating, Derrida is very much working in harmony with Salon's own thought. If you read Salon's great, uh, prize acceptance speech, he was given the Buchner prize, uh, in 1960. Um, it's called the Meridian speech because the title, he titled it the Meridian. Uh, he writes a good deal about dates in that, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very dense text. It's almost as dense as a Salon poem, uh, very rich. And I recommend it wholeheartedly to, to anyone who cares about, about, um, about Salon or about, about, um, modern poetry. Um, and Salon, um, partly, uh, because he's also reading, um, a story by Gerald Bruchner, um, In which the date the twentieth of January appears, Zelan ends up claiming every poem has its twentieth of January. What does he mean by that? Well, (laughs) you can, uh, you may. uh, There will be no definitive answer to that. But the twentieth of January uh, was the day in which the um, the Nazi government uh, decided uh, on its genocidal approach to. uh, to the uh, quote unquote Jewish question. Um, that's the Vance conference in which the regime committed itself to genocide. So on the one hand, the 20th of January for Ceylon as a survivor um, uh, has a, it's a mark of trauma, a mark of that which must not be forgotten, that which must the poetry must in certain slant way bear witness. And, but it's also Salon also writes and thinks of the date as, um, an event that can also be to come an openness to an other another another encounter. So it's double edged in Salon. Um, it's, it's as it were, the kernel of a poem and Derrida, um, Finds in this a poetic version, you could say, of his enormously powerful analysis of iterability and the trace uh, and the mark, uh, which, in some way or other, all of his work um, is kind of the spine that runs through his vast oeuvre. Um, because the date uh, must, on the one hand, it you know it signifies at once. Uh, the mark of something singular, right? It was that day, that moment, when that happened. And yet, in order to function as a date, it has to be repeatable, iterable. Um, uh, so it, the date both um, it must both be iterable, and yet it must also, in a sense, withhold a secret. And there are a lot of dates in Salon's poems, sometimes even effaced ones. He'll date a poem, and then he'll remove the date. Um, and of course we have seen in the two shibboleth poems that dates appear right in the form of February, uh, which would be more, we'll perhaps want to say more about that. So, um, when Derrida talks about shibboleth in relation to date, he's talking in part about the kind of question of access to the, to the poem, um, uh, do we know what it what 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 is being what is being evoked by by the date, uh, which is which which the poem is is uh, circling around, and with circumcision, of course, is uh, more obviously you could say um, a sign of inclusion and exclusion, right? It's a mark that um, that uh, defines a community. Um, so that's um, that's a rough summary of the main points, I hope, of, of, of Derrida's very rich text, which I can't begin to, you know, try to summarize properly.
1: Yeah, that's a it's a very difficult text. I, I think I was assigned it twice while I was a student at Brown and both times it was it was hours spent in the library trying to track down what it meant and try to capture it. But I think on some level there's, it's impossible. And I think Derrida would himself, um, accede to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you bring up this, the idea of the date as this, this really interesting and epiretic moment or concept, because in one way it must be singular and it must be, um, an individual thing, like the, February thirteenth, it's this one thing, but it it only can be that insofar as it is able to repeat, and insofar as every year has its February thirteenth. Um, and I think I w- I think we can talk now about um the specifics of February thirteenth. So, um, if you want to give the context of of that, um, as well as um, I guess maybe the. It be, that being the shibboleth, um, February February no pasarán, which appears in both poems. Um, can you just tell us more about what this date means?
0: Sure, I'll try. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so um, the the second poem, which is to say the first one we read in Einz, um gives you a more specific uh, date, right? Thirteenth uh, of February. Um, and, uh, the, the references that all the standard, um, sort of commentaries on Ceylon offer you there are, uh, first it's the date in which, um, uh, the socialist party was crushed in, uh, the brief, call it civil war in Vienna in 1934, um, by the regime of, uh, the Dollfuss regime, um. Um, who was the head of the Christian Socialist Party? Essentially, what's called Austrofascism. Um, ironically, uh, Dollfuss was assassinated by Nazi agents a year later, um, and uh, another member of his party became president and, until the Anschluss, right in in 1938. Uh, so, uh, but but it's essentially it was a fascist party, and um, uh, it. Uh, Crushed the uh, uh, the socialist movement in 1934 on the on the 13th. Uh, then also on February 13th, 1962, which is a topical reference when Celan is writing his poem, there was a massive funeral in Paris for uh, victims uh, who had been protesters who had been killed protesting the OAS, which stands for the Organisation Armée Secrète, which was a paramilitary uh, French organization that was seeking to prolong the war in Algeria. So the protesters against the OAS were killed by police. and Their funeral was on the 13th of February, 1962. It was a huge event. And then there's also on February 12th, but reported on the 13th, is one of the largest anti-fascist demonstrations in Parisian history uh, in 1934, if I remember rightly. Um, You have to check that. Um, This is all just to say that even with the relative specificity of the 13th of February, uh, Ceylon manages to suggest multiple references for the date. So the date not only is singular, uh, not only does it come around again every year, as it were, February 13th, um, but Ceylon is also em- emphasizing that, that there's a split singularity that he's interested in. It's singular here and it's singular there. And it's February 13th. And we're going to um, poetically bring it together in one, in eins all of these singular moments of violence, loss, or hope, um, because there can be hope as well. Um, February, in this case, the 16th, was the um, um, uh, the uh, acquisition of power of the um, Popular Front in Madrid you know, that was then overthrown by Franco um, starting the following summer.
1: Mm-hmm. and these dates oh, yeah well I was going to say um so this the possibility of hope that um ceylon is inscribing into the into the poems um kind of it moves along the same axis of like remembering and keeping score and making sure to honor the the past that has come to be and that we are inheriting um, and you say that on these poems, quote, present themselves as political acts of memory and address at the same time, like, and at the, at the same time that, like all literary texts, they disabled a reduction of language to message or form to meaning. Um, and I think that's something that's very palpable in the poems, especially um, in Shibboleth, unfurl your flagged half-mast memory. Um, can you talk a bit about how these? Act these poems both act or act as memory and address, especially in relation to what you call um, their anti-capitalist and anti-fascist
0: um, rhetorics. Sure, um, let me maybe just first quickly say a word about the other prominent possible shibboleth, because the poem makes it impossible to say that there's any one shibboleth right in the, in, in, in the poem. And that's part of what it's doing to the concept of shibboleth. Whereas in the in the scene of sovereign violence in the Bible or elsewhere, um, there's only one right shibboleth. You have to answer to power. The poem is exploding that into multiple shibboleths. But the other one that is very prominent, of course, is the Spanish phrase, no pasaran, um, which became famous. Uh, it was originally a First World War. It um, uh, comes from the First World War. as a French uh, phrase, I think, from Verdun, uh, although I have terrible memory unless I go remind myself of things. Uh, they will not pass, right? You um, ne passeront point. But it, it became particularly famous in, um, uh, when um, uh, Dolores Ibarri Gomez, uh, over the radio, uh, gave her speech in response to the rebellion of the generals, uh, uh, they will not pass, no pasaran. And so it's remained with us as a as a sort of leftist slogan. And note that it's in the future tense in Spanish. Um, it's not, it's, it's so, and it survives as a shibboleth slogan past the fall of Madrid. Um, Franco is, Supposedly said "Emos pasado," ironically, right when he captured Madrid, as though he could annihilate uh, the famous, uh, you know, slogan "No pasarán." Well, guess what? We did pass. Yes, they did. But the um, there's a there's a utopic possibility in the slogan, inscribed in the slogan that Solan I think activates in the poem, um, and part of the utopic possibility that it points to is that no one will pass perhaps because no one ultimately because maybe at some point no one will be a fascist anymore. Right. Uh, so no one has to be a fascist. Um, the, 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 this shibboleth as re as sort of repositioned by Ceylon, um, leaves that open, leaves that possibility of future of a futurity open. And of course it's a reversal of the biblical scenario because, uh, it's a defensive rather than offensive, um, uh, uh, shibboleth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is that someone is trying to pass rather than trying to escape, um, um, as in the biblical story. Um, so, uh, with that, um, yeah, maybe, um, I should say something about address, um, Yeah, I I was going to ask about that.
1: Um, There's this, you have an incredible chapter about apostrophe and the last um, half of your other chapter on Ceylon is about address. And I think what I would like to hear about is how you think the poems use address as in relation to their their bearing a shibboleth. Um, Because in the Bremen speech, Ceylon talks about how the poem is um, is like a message in a bottle that you throw out to see, and the poem is always on its way towards the other. It's always an address, but it doesn't always necessarily have this kind of this this relationship between two distinct and visible um subjects it's the poem and the other. so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the structures of address and how that relates to the shibboleth in question
0: yeah, the poem is a is an address to the other. um, um, And um, the trope that is associable with address is, is called apostrophe, um, uh, which literally means turning away apostrophane in, in Greek. Uh, And what we, what apostrophe is as a trope is an address to the absent or the dead or the inanimate. Right. Uh, it's a it's a trope that's easy to parody, um, but it's also the trope that's at the heart of the sort of great ode tradition in in Western poetry. Oh, wild west wind, right? Or or thou still unravaged bride of quietness, Keats addressing the urn. Uh, so uh, this is a a, tr- a figure of address that. Uh, seeks to animate um, the absent, the dead, the inanimate. And so it's easy to think of apostrophe as sort of centered in a full and sovereign intent that extends its generosity toward the absent and the dead and animates them. Um, And there's a, you know, that's certainly part of the, the theater of of this trope. But any powerful apostrophe also reveals that um, the very power of the trope to generate, um, uh, to to, to produce uh, animation um, is also its power to have a kind of a spectral effect and to uh, open... A, a as it were an emptiness in the in the sovereignty of the speaker. Um, so and this is very much what Ceylon is about because is, his is a relational poetry that it's a poetry that is uh, seeking like a message in a bottle as you said uh, to move toward the other to open itself to the other. Um, and so uh, maybe I'll say one thing about a detail in the, in the earlier poem, Shibboleth. Uh, right at its heart, it apostrophizes the heart, right? Helz. Um, and it says to the heart, uh, call, call out the Shibboleth. Um, and in German, that's Rufs, das Shibboleth. And you can hear, as I'm saying it, that Salan has packed those s's right next to those sh sounds, so he's put the Ephraimite, as it were, together with the Gileadite uh, pronunciation, um, signifying uh, or producing or performing, as it were, a, a, a deliberate sort of exposure of the text to uh, what to failure, but also to adventure to. Uh, well, adventure maybe sounds a little, a little wrong, but but um, but risk. There, risk in a positive sense of of openness. And as you know, uh, one of his most famous uh, 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 sayings is one that Salan wrote in French. So, in one of his other languages, uh, la poésie ne s'impose plus; elle s'expose. Poetry no longer establishes but exposes itself. It's just this one sentence that we have from him uh, written down for some reason in French, perhaps because as it's, it's a kind of extra exposure. Uh, that's what the poetry seeks to do. And it's all, almost all Salon poems address an other in some way, uh, precisely for this reason.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the the great challenges of Ceylon's poetry and in how it addresses another and I think how it pushes the reader away almost because it it they're hard to read these texts. Um and it's hard to imagine yourself as the other, but reading it brings that to life. There's a performative gesture of of you know, of picking up that message in a bottle and seeing if you can read it. Um and I want to move now to the final chapter, um, a very short one, but it's it's really, I think, powerful because of its referent. Um, and people can't see this because we're on a podcast, but it is on the cover of your book. And I think we can try to post a link to it um, in the podcast biography, or not biography, uh, the, the description. There we go. Um, and it's a picture of um, Doris Salcedo's installation at the Tate Modern from 2007 titled Shibboleth. And it's, um, it's a giant crack in the ground. Um, And I have not seen this. I don't know if you have in person, but um, the Tate Modern still bears the scars of it. Um, And I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about what you're trying to bring out in this, um, in this little final chapter about what she's doing with Ceylon and what the fissure in the ground means for the word shibboleth and for how we might come to know it and know Ceylon's poem?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. The the crack itself is no longer visible. It was filled in, it, it was an installation in the Turbine Hall to the Tate Modern in 2007. And then in uh, in the spring 2008, it was filled in, but what can now still see is a brown scar in the floor. So there's a way in which it's an artwork that has persisted, as it were, past its past the expiration of its papers illegally uh, in the in in the European country uh, as an immigrant. So, and all of those issues are, of course, in play in in this particular work. Uh, um, well, one reason why I talk about it at the end of the book is because, um, well, it's a great piece of art, but it's also done by an artist um, who's an intense reader of Ceylon and of Derrida and of French thought generally. Uh, Doris Salcedo has, in fact, subtitled some of her works with phrases from Ceylon poems, and not just that, but from relatively obscure Ceylon poems, not the, you know, the greatest hits that <laughs> not that any Salon poem is
1: ah, totus a really
0: great hit, but, um, but, but really quite, um, you know, she really knows the of them. So, um, although you can never say for sure, because this kind of thing is always part of the secret of the artwork, right? The shibboleth that it doesn't, that's the unpronounceable that it won't say there's probably a direct illusion, or at least there's a, an echo, Um, so this work artwork, um, you know, which is not only a crack in the ground, but also has embedded steel mesh fencing, invisible bits to evoke, um, uh, you know, the, um, the technology of, of steel fencing to which we owe, um, so many things, many disastrous things, uh, in, in contemporary life. Um, uh, this artwork brings us back, brings the book back at the end to the sort of larger global political technical question of borders and identity papers and the refugee crisis. So I, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write about Salcedo at the end of the text. Um, yeah, and it's also, it, it brings uh, up again something that is at the heart of Salon's work and really Derrida's as well, uh, which is um, trying to bear witness for those who cannot speak, right? For the dead or the effectively dead um, whose silence demands to, to demand speech, but not just any speech, right? Uh, the effort, the effort is to find a speech that would be um, adequate, which is the impossible,
1: which yeah, is our <laughs> you write, Salcedo's work commemorates
0: but does not report,
1: and it accepts the risk of abstraction and aestheticization, of a further loss and effacement of the injury it mourns, and it forwards an impossible responsibility. And I think that is a precise definition or characterization of Ceylon's poetry, in that it there's a, it's talking about something but does not use the same language we would, we would normally talk about the Shoah or, um, fascist regimes of violence. Um, it does something else, which I think is where it it gains its power. So I have one final question, um, before we wrap up the interview, um, which is not about the book, it's about yourself and future books. So what are you thinking about now? Um, as we go into the future, what are your, thoughts, or do you have any projects in the pipeline already?
0: Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I've come back to a very old but difficult question that actually I think Salon is helping me with, um, which is the relation between poetry and prayer. Uh, I've grown interested in prayer, um, you know, in a somewhat secular vantage point, but, 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 but in a very serious way asking, you know, what is, what is poetry? What is prayer? Uh, could there be a literary prayer, uh, that would not, not in the trivial sense, but in the, but in the, uh, but, but, but in a a real and anguished one. (laughs) And this obviously has a relation to apostrophe and address and, and to Mm -hmm. Salon's, um, work. And there are several of his poems that I'm, I'm think, trying to think more about in relation to this question. I'm also trying to write a few pages about the great Brazilian writer, uh, Clarice Lispector, uh, whose work is, I think, quite extraordinary and um, who also that's has some great under <laughs> <laughs> So that's what I'm up to right now. Well, those sound like
1: great projects. And, um, and I would, hope that we can have you back on if anything turns into a book.
0: Well, I would be delighted to come back.
1: Well, thank you for talking with me today, Mark. Um, once again, this was Mark Redfield talking about his book, Shibboleth Judges Derrida Ceylon, which is out now from Fordham University Press. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. And until next time, Have a good one.